about we start with where you are sitting right now? Because this is the other thing. It's I've talked to a lot of guys stateside and a lot of guys in New Zealand. So, yeah, maybe that's a good starting point. Right. So, um, well, obviously, I'm sitting at my bar. Um, <laughs> but we, um, we're, we're living in a, on the edge of a protected area, but inside a, another sanctuary. And we got this, uh, this little outside house in the bush. It is um, in Kenya. And it is... Uh, about three hours from the Mombasa, from Mombasa, from the coast, about three hours due west. And you've got two immense national parks there, Tsavo West and Tsavo East National Park. And we're right smack in the middle of that. So it's, it's semi-arid. Um, and um, we had a lot of rain this year, but this, the, like 2016, not even a single drop fell. So that's sort of the type of environment. Like really proper bush and, um, you know, lots of wildlife here. Um, you know, all the game and, and giraffe and elephants, basically all the big five except for rhinos. Mm -hmm. um, rhinos these days require a, a very extensive security plan. Um, and they, they try to keep them away in these sort of intensive protection zones. And that requires quite an investment. So it's a conscious choice of the people here to not put them here right next to the road that goes to Mombasa, that goes to the yeah. harbor, that goes to China, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's where we are. Yeah, and and what are you doing there? What what's your purpose <laughs> over there at the moment? Yeah, we're running a um, uh, a ranger training program. It's called Lead Ranger, and it's uh, it's geared around leadership development and in, uh, train the trainer courses, but not training existing trainers, but teaching people how to instruct these skills back to their peers. Gotcha. Um, we feel that if we are not making ourselves obsolete in the next five, 10 years by, you know, really investing in that local capacity, uh, we're not doing a good job. So, um, you know, because, you know, that these rangers, they speak the language, they understand the culture. A lot of them have incredible experience in the bush. You know, some of these guys are proper ninjas, you know, they're, mm. they're, they're tracking wool, you know, I can't even dream getting close to, to what level they are at and, and really good in the bush understanding the animals. So we're, we're just trying to reinforce that and give them the tools to pass that on to next generations. So when you say ranger, you're meaning wildlife rangers and you're meaning in the context of uh, anti-poaching? Is that primarily the... Uh, it's part of it. It's part of it. You know, it's, um, in, its, in its foundation, all the rangers are... Um, you know, first and foremost, conservationists, you know, mm. they, they care of the wildlife. And, and that comes with all the things that, you know, a um, someone in charge of a protected area, for instance, in New Zealand does as well, you know, and it is about pest control and it is about okay. uh, monitoring, you know, the, the species, the vulnerable species, the, the plants, everything. Um, unfortunately, because of you know, the demand for things like ivory, demand for, 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 for um, rhino horn, and, and also people coming into the park for, for subsistence hunting or commercial hunting of, of, um, of game. There is a, there's a big element of law enforcement with this involved as well, yeah. Because mm. I was looking at the photos on your, on both your Instagram and the Lead Ranger one as well, and you also see just with like the first aid training that you're doing mm. as well, that a lot of it, I'm guessing, like you're saying, going back into the community to just be first responders or first aiders in general is probably quite beneficial to a, a lot of these groups. I would guess that's the thing. 
Yeah, no, you know, if, if you think about like this park here where we are, the rangers, they patrol unarmed. So imagine, you know, they got, there's a group of six, they only got sticks. Mm. Um, just choice to be unarmed. And they, and they walk in between the lions and the buffaloes and everything. And, and yeah. uh, they're really good at it. And the, the amount of times that a, that a ranger actually gets, um, gets injured by wildlife is very low. Um, right. It happens in confrontations with offenders. And it definitely happens on the edges of the parks where the communities are, where you get, um, you know, as population is growing, obviously, mm. there's a bit of a battle for space with, with the wildlife, you know, and, 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 and that sort of necessary separation you normally have with that dangerous game is sort of diminishing. So what happens is, is you, you get conflict between people and animals, you know, elephants go into the shambas here, into the little, um, little farms, they start eating the maize and then, uh, farmer comes out at night and gets mullered by the elephant, something like mm. that, you know? And, and it's exactly what you're saying. You know, the, the part of the first aid training, which is really good is that these rangers not just use it for themselves, but they use it for community members that get injured in these confrontations. And I think it's a, it's, it's a great service to provide to people. And it, and it really shows that, you know, you're not just there, for the wildlife, which yeah. is sometimes a, a, a conception, you know, that uh, uh, perception, not conception. Perception, conception. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> a perception. I'm that, sure there's that, breeding programs going on, but slightly, yeah. I want to go into that, but uh, <laughs> no, 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 there, there are perceptions that, um, you know, these rangers, they're just there for the wildlife. You yeah, know, yeah. If we, the wildlife, you know, we get arrested and all that, but now they add value to the communities as well, you know, with yeah. snake bites or, you know, with the this larger game and the ripple effect of that is is, is amazing because mm. um you know it, it from a law enforcement standpoint it really re reinforces and enhances your information position in these communities you know because mm. if they if they don't buy into what you're doing you're just a couple of blokes in a huge terrain yeah you know how you can do that you know so so yeah so so you're absolutely right it's it's it has a lot of good ripples yeah. Well, it's also something like when I'm doing the firearms licensing, I ask everybody who's got first aid training, who's got a first aid cert, who's got well, who's got any first aid training and point out to them it's one for us, we're handling or hunting firearms, we've got knives around, it's, you know, but also then I point out to them, it's just a good life skill. If you injure yourself or come across someone who's been injured to be able or comfortable to do something, not, you know, not necessarily going to be able the same as a, as a doctor or a first responder or anything, but even for real simple first aid to just do something hundred percent hundred percent and if you if you think about it i was speaking um um uh, not speaking to i was listening to a, a a conference online not too long ago techman australia did that okay um, yep and they um and and you know if if you look at the amount of accidents people have they're all around the house you know someone's yeah. messing around with a chainsaw or he's doing some wood sawing or whatever and and you know these skills, yeah, I couldn't overemphasize that. You you don't want to be that bloke that stands there while someone is obviously snuffing it, and you can't do anything about it. And and it doesn't take, as you know, it doesn't take a lot of time to get a, a solid foundation in, mm. in somebody's life saving skill just to buy some time to get someone 
to yep. a hospital. And, uh, well, yeah. we've had in the last couple of years has become more prominent. And I deal with uh, one guy, Simon from Prakmed, who's probably been the, the tip of the spear for it. And what it is, it's the ex-military guys bringing a lot of their their trauma stuff or their their mm. real frontline first aid and then teaching it and, and, and customizing, making it available to civilians. Because the, the, the first aid courses traditionally we've had here is CPR, you know, put a splint on and, and get them okay for the ambulance. But the reality is, is if, if people have a big accident where your first aid kit and your band-aids are not going to help, you need to do something quite serious because otherwise they will be bleeding out and dying. So it, it's good to see sort of that slightly more advanced first aid made a little bit more available and, and, and getting across to everybody. It's like everybody should know if someone is losing a lot of blood, what you might be able to do to help out with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and with the with the uh, we we call it Ranger Lifesaver. What we do here, and it is based on on T Triple C and T E C C mix of it because okay. T Triple C obviously was designed for the military with a specific demographic, and mm. you know they're all healthy, mostly guys, healthy. Yep. You know, between eighteen and sort of forty, and uh, and they got body armor, so you get yep. certain trauma. Um, and also certain mechanisms of injury, but we had to adjust it because one of the things you get here is, you know, when a buffalo runs into you and tries to get, you know, tries to get you, that is a completely different mechanism of injury. It's like being run over by a truck with a, you know, with a horn on the front. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, I, I saw a photo. I don't know if it was you that was in it. it Might have been, but it was, it was a guy lying down with a cling wrap over his stomach, and I was looking at it going, "What the?" And then, then I read, and it was the Butterworth. And I was, was like, a, "Yeah, it was a setup." Okay, <laughs> that's very convincing. <laughs> no, that's, that's the thing that happens, you know, and it's and and it it really ties into the defense mechanisms of these animals, you know. If yeah. they fight a lion, they'll try to drive it to the ground or throw it, but at least get the horns. So they're underneath the soft underbelly and just rip it open, you know. Mm. And that happens to people as well. And 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 it looks terrible. Um, and aside from internal bleeding, which there's not a lot you can do, but it's a very distracting injury that will yeah. keep you from, from taking the steps that you really need to take. And you know, it, it also sort of goes into spinal injury and and pelvic injuries and things like that. So you got to. So we had to adjust that to this sort of specific. Um, yeah, environment and the threats really. Yeah. Um, no, so, and what what is your background? I've only had a chance to read. I believe you are Dutch military. Was that correct? Or like, I mean, how, how how and how did you get more leaning into the? I guess the tracking side of it and that side of it, or was that just part of your training originally? And you? No, I I joined the Marines when I was oh, Dutch Marines. <laughs> Um, when I was like 17, I think. Um, you know, my, um, I didn't have the easiest um, sort of youth. So for me, it was a decision to belong somewhere, you know. No. You yep. don't even love the ocean, but that thing really sort of appealed to me, you know, these <laughs> big guys. I wanted, wanted to be part of that. So, but as I said, I didn't like the ocean. So anything water related, um, which is, you know, you can have it. But um, the one thing that I really did take to was, you know, a big part of the Marine Corps is, you know, once you get there, you're on land and you've got to do stuff on land. And I started in the infantry, uh, then went into the recce teams, then um, did my sniping thing, which I really sort of took to. I really liked that. 
because it has a technical aspect and, mm. the, and the food craft aspect is also great. Became an instructor on that and then went to do a jungle warfare course in Brunei with the British. So became a jungle warfare instructor and did a, a lot of these courses in, uh, in different jungles across the world. And again, you know, like a pig and shit, I loved it, you know. No deep water anywhere near, you know. <laughs> in the bushes and filthy and nah, mate, I loved it. And, and what I also liked about it was that it, um, you know, jungle operations really throw you back to basic soldiering done very well at a high standard. Right. Or, or a lot of the, the, the technical sort of applications that, that we have these days, they don't really apply to, to the jungle. You know, everything mm. is a challenge. You know, night vision, very difficult. Um, drones, well, they, they see the broccoli, but don't see what's going on underneath. So, so I really took to that. And in extension of that, I went to do the, um, the Operational Trackers Instructors course, which is also run in Brunei, which at the time I think was an eight-week course. And that was uh, geared around tracking in the jungle. And, uh, and that is very similar to what the Kiwi SES does in their course. Yeah. And, and um, no, mate, I loved it. I loved it. Mm. It's, it's, uh, again, it, it, it really ties into all these other sort of things I did in my past, sort of the direction, that, the choices that I was able to take fortunately. And um, yeah, and it all piled onto each other. So that was how I mm. ended up with, yeah. I mean, it's different. Like New Zealand, I mean, for a start, we don't really have dangerous game. You know, the da most dangerous thing we've got down here is mosquitoes, and they don't really carry anything either. So that's, you know, I mean, it's really just the, the irritant side of it. Um, and like I said to you, I was lucky enough through Search and Rescue, Rescue to do some of the tracking with a couple of those guys. But what always struck me as well, even from a, a hunting or a general bushcraft point of view, is tracking as much as anything there's there's a skill set but it's also just a awareness of your environment and what is in place and what is out of place and just slowing things down and and looking around so i mean that's why i encourage when i shared the um that link to the uf your the series you did with uf pro as well it's like well even if you're not planning on doing man tracking and even to a certain extent, you're doing animal tracking, you want to just start getting an idea of what's going on around there, or just even just some real basic, you know, how to be a little bit more present in the bush, which is a good thing for anybody who's out there doing it. Um, yeah, it all kind of just feeds into each other very, very nicely. No, no, it's, and, and, and what you're saying is, is absolutely right, because, you know, when, when you learn tracking and, and, and you've, you've done it is, you know, the first thing that you need to do is you need to sensitize your hmm. vision in combination with your brain to these minute changes. And it, um, it's one of those things that you can't rationalize. You've got you to gotta see it to start building these file folders, how sign looks in different environments. Yeah. And, and as you're building these, these file folders through, I don't know if you did a pace-to-pace -pace track as an exercise or pace tracking where you try to find every step. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. It's an awesome, awesome exercise in different terrain to, to really sort of start getting your brain going. And when you do this with people for the first time, what you often see is that they, because you, for those people that don't know it, basically you mark a start point, you mark an end point. It can be anywhere between 30 and 100 meters. And you go to the start point, you put one footstep down, and then you walk naturally towards the end point. And you circle back, and then you try to find every single step mm. that you make in the terrain. And you always start with an easy substrate like um, dirt, 
or something like that. And, it, and, and you, can, you can practice that everywhere. And what you often see is that, you know, the first step they can see, because that was the first step they made. The second one, they spent five minutes finding it. The next one, they spent three minutes finding it. But there comes a moment, which is, you know, magical thing to me, is when it clicks, mm. when that all the falls in place. And then, you know, very often you see people going, hold on, there. And that's when it falls into place. And that ties into what you were saying, because um, you're basically, you know, giving yourself more tools and more reference to interpret your surroundings. Yeah. And it helps with situational awareness, situational understanding, and just seeing these little things that are out of place, your observation skills are, you know, they, they get a lot better. And it's just a great thing. You know, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, like read well, the book. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, it was it was one of those things I didn't, I wasn't able to carry on with it. And it's one thing I want to get back into. And I know it's one of those, like you say, after after when I did the course, first day, I was like, how am I ever going to do, how, you know, and they, they were instructing us that we were going to try and track a guy down the edge of a tar seal road. It's like, how do you follow somebody who's walked down the edge of it? And then after doing it for a couple of days, you do, you start seeing that path coming through. And I haven't, um, it's always kind of stuck with me and I haven't had the the time to go out and practice it, but I still am aware is even just walking down a track on a day walk with my little girls now is all the rubbish, even a couple of meters into the bush, all just leaps out at me now. Not just the stuff in front of me, but I'll just be walking down, something will catch my eye. It's either a little flag they use for the bait lines or it's just a bit of aluminium foil that glints or it's, it's just something that shouldn't be there. You know, and then you're like, oh, well, I better go pick that up now, but I've seen it as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I know it's, a, it's one of those skills you have to practice and get, you'll get on form. But at the same time, certain things, once you've kind of just know what is there, you have trouble not seeing them anymore, which is very, very cool as well. It's just weird, weird and wonderful how the brain works. You know, I've, I've got a really good friend in Holland. He works for the Dutch Forensic Institute. His name is Marcel, and he's... He's um, an ex. Uh, he started off as an expert on um, blood spatter analysis, I think, or blood pattern analysis, I think okay. it's called. Yep. Right. So he's he's our, our Dexter. If, if you're familiar with that series, and um, yep. well, I, I would walk with him down the street in Holland, and we're just casually talking. You know, we're not observing necessarily our surroundings. We're chatting, and he would say, "That's blood," and then he points at like a little droplet on the side of the road there, which is black, not even red. Right. But that, it's exactly the same thing. He's seen it so many times that his brain, you know, picks up on it. Like I, I was sitting with, um, one more story and then I'll finish. <laughs> I was sitting with Eric Sagway here, who's the head of security. He's a big black African guy, his hands about the size of my face and um, awesome dude. And we're sitting in his um, land cruiser and we're, we're sort of driving down the, the track. And, um, you know, Eric has a heavy foot, so we, we never drive really slow. So you're doing about 60 million hours. We're chatting away. Suddenly, he slams the brake, reverses for about 50 meters, and there's a very faint outline of a bootprint on the left. And and he gets then to the point where these patterns are so embedded in his mind that it actually unconsciously gets processed. Mm. So it it sort of gets picked up. He drives on, and then it goes, hey, there's something wrong there. It's 
Yeah, it blows your mind. <laughs> well, it's those, it's those, they talk about the levels of, you know, uh, was it unconscious incompetence and then conscious incompetence, meaning you, you know, you know, you don't know, and then conscious competence where you've got to focus and be on, on your game to do it. Or then eventually the goal is somewhere between that and the unconscious competence where it just happens for you and it just pulls your attention in. And you see the same thing with shooting as well as that, you know, if, if you haven't been shooting for a while, you need to be making sure you're going through all your, your internal checklists and the processes, but then you get into that flow state, which they talk about, and, um, and, and you kind of step aside and just do everything just works like it needs to work. Yeah, yeah. That's the theory yeah. anyway. It doesn't always happen that way. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, with your hunting background, you must have seen it as well. You know, some people, when they go in the woods, they, um, you know, they're lucky if they, if they, if they pick up – for instance, a deer when its full outline is visible, mm. preferably from the side, you know. But if if you, you know, people that hunt, they they are able to pick up partials of an animal, something signal, or even a certain sound, yeah, uh, movement where you go, I know what that is. It's, it's all the same thing. It, it, it's the well, good. I'm out tomorrow at a game estate that I do some work on. I've got a client out, the shooting client out there as well. And Richard, who's the owner, is the same thing. You can be standing there with a pair of binoculars on the hill. I'm trying to glass everything with binoculars, looking for animal, for deer. And he's just pointing them out. They're all over the place. And as he points them out, you see them basically, it's amazing. They just appear on the landscape. They've always, yeah, yeah they've been there. They haven't, it's not like they're hiding. They're like, oh, there's one, there's one. They're, oh, I'm like looking at 50 animals, but you just need someone to almost just get you going on that path and you're like yeah yeah there's there's a couple of animals out here at the moment exactly the same thing we're tracking exactly the same so how then where was that transition from the the military side of things into working with the conservation and with the ranger programs i mean had you been involved like had you done anything kenya or africa or the big game or that side of it before no, it's 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 a bit of a cliche in that sense, you know. I'm I'm one of those ex-military guys that that thought he could do some good in Africa, and mm. um, but uh, there's a there's a twist to this story. So <laughs> it, it started off in 2012, and um, in 2012, I don't know if you're aware of it, but on the east coast of Africa, there was a huge piracy problem, uh, mainly coming out of Somalia. So yeah, you're talking about I think at the time, don't quote me on it, about. 25 to 30 ships that were hijacked were inside the territorial waters of Somalia. And basically what the pirates did is they would board a ship. And once they had control, they, they sort of took it to uh, into the territorial waters. And then they would you know, negotiate with the shipping company for payments. And wow. these were, some of them were millions of dollars. Hmm. And then literally delivered in, dropped out of airplanes in orange duffel bags by, uh, you know, by contractors onto the ships big scrap and then someone would have it and they all bugger off. Yeah. And um, so, and, and this was a big concern. So um, I was part of a NATO mission there where we had a couple of ships floating around. And then whenever there was a distress call from one of these boats, we would sort of steam up there. Uh, we had a boarding team. I was part of the sniper team on board. So we would provide security for either from the helicopter or from the, the, the front of the ship, yep. you know, once, once we boarded and stuff like that. So yeah, happily bobbing around the Indian Ocean, having a great time, and then at some point we um, we uh, went to Mombasa because the Grey Cafe, as we used to call it, had to had to get some uh, some supplies in, and, um, <laughs> and we had about four days, so we cleaned all our stuff, and then the team manager said, you know, why not? 
go into one of these parks here. And I've never been mm. to East Africa. And uh, oh, great. So we got a van. We all piled in uh, with a guide. And we went into Tsavo East, which is just across the road here. Um, and mate, I was blown away by it. This is this mm. vast savanna terrain. If you're on a bit of a high power point, you can see elephant groups of 100, 200 animals, you know, just cruising around. And uh, it just blew me away. And, and it was really, really nice. And, and we were there for three days. And then at some point, um, we came around sort of a bend, and there was a group of rangers standing there, a couple of vehicles. And, uh, and we said to the guy, I said, what's going on there? He said, oh, that's the Kenyan Wildlife Service. Uh, looks like they're, um, you know, they're doing some sort of operation. So uh, uh, we can't go there. So we convinced him that we wanted to go there. And he went there. <laughs> we had a little chat with the, uh, with the guys. And there was an elephant that was just killed. Right? So he was there. One of the tusks was removed you know, with an axe. The other one was still there. So, um, you know, Obviously, the, the, the guys that did it got interrupted, mm. and the Kenyan officers was just about ready to do their pursuit. And these were um, what they call uh, shifters, Somali shifters. So these were Somalis coming across the border, group of four or five with AKs, and they shoot an elephant, and then they take the ivory away. And um, yeah, and I, and, I, and I got a bit of time with the animals sit there. And, uh, you know, I'm not overly sentimental about animals, but just the uselessness of the whole thing and the unbridled mm. opportunism you know just for for because you know they get about two bucks two two us dollars for kilo just for a couple of stinking bucks they kill something that i just you know witnessed mm. as it should be you know and and um I've, I've, I've always sort of had a felt you know had a felt felt sort of a strong duty to the underdog and to me that that whole thing the rangers the element that, that to me was a big underdog and i sort of made a unconscious decision at that point that i wanted to do something about it but you know and then um and then finally pulled the plug uh, beginning of 2014 left the uh, left the marines the day after they promoted me to sergeant major um jumped ship and then i basically went to a couple of organizations and said look um I've seen one dead elephant. I have no idea what the problem is. You know, you mm. can take me along as an instructor. I'll do it for free. These are my qualifications. Just uh, to start understanding what's going on. So, yep. got to go to a couple of places: Tanzania, Kenya, West Africa, Thailand, uh, working with rangers. And I, and I started to get a bit of an idea. You know, what, what is going on and what these men and women need to do. And um, yeah, and and then a project here came up. And that brings us to where we are. And it was basically a proof of concept for tech for tech in, uh, in conservation. So there were gunshot detectors, there were drones, there was, you know, everyone and their horse came out. All of it was useless, by the way. But mm. that isn't. Um, and we were asked to, uh, to do the responder training for the rangers. So if an alert goes off, rangers need to respond. So imagine me, I'm sitting at home in Holland. You know, I've got my laptop in front of me. Now I've got this idea and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, what these guys need to do, they need to do navigation, they need to do tracking, they need to do actions on, they need to do formations, they need to do this, this, and this. And I start hammering away on it, you know. Obviously, I'm a bloke. Obviously, <laughs> and also, you know, ex-military. So I've got all the answers, of course. I'm hammering away. <laughs> And at the end of a couple of weeks, I got a pile of paper this thick, and this is what I was going to do with these ranges when I get there. Yep. So I send it over. Organization here, Wildlife Works, they say, uh, 
I say, oh, great. We'll talk about it when you get here. Awesome. Okay. So then I arrived. I met Eric, the big guy. I said, Eric, did you, uh, did you get my paper? My papers? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, what do you think? He said, yeah, yeah, good. But I tell you what, tomorrow I've, I've got a patrol set up for you. Go on patrol tomorrow with these guys. And then uh, when you come back, we'll discuss the, the program. And um, so next morning I went out with these guys. Tracking off the chart, observation off the chart, um, formations off the chart, mm. actions on like the next level. I'm just walking around thinking, and I see my pile of paper getting smaller. So <laughs> back at the end of the day, got a cold beer, threw the whole pile onto the fire. And that was the best thing that could ever happen because that was a great lesson to learn. You know, mm. you listen first before you. You know, come with, them with your opinions. And um, so the next day, I said, we sat down together and I said, what are your problems? And then mm. they came out with the things that they struggled with. And we had an amazing couple of weeks with them. But um, so I was very fortunate to very early on learn that lesson. And um, yeah, so that's how that transition went. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of, part of me getting contact, contact with you, I mean, another like I was very fortunate at about 16 is over for a couple of weeks. So I did, it was about a week in Botswana and I think a week in Zimbabwe in the off season. But if essentially we went through, see it was before I wasn't really hunting or guns or anything. So I couldn't even tell you whether we were staying at safari parks, but I don't know if on the on season there would have been hunters there or if it was like non hunting safari. I, and I still don't quite know how a lot of that works, but in New Zealand, we obviously have quite a strong in in the the circles that do it a hunting culture and a lot of the 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 rural and hunting and and it's all deer or tar chamois those those kind of things, but we don't have the we don't have really any of the big animals. We certainly have dangerous game. So, the the African hunting thing has always been this little step removed. I would say from most New Zealanders, some people will have it as a bucket list thing. They'll go over maybe and hunt and come back, but the whole hunting for a side of it and it is one part of it, which I will talk about because I've seen one of your comments on Instagram. So I want to ask you about from the, that side of it as well. Um, but even just that from a wilderness side of it is just like you say, the scale and the numbers and just the, the sheer size. Most people only ever see these animals in a zoo. And I was fortunate enough to have seen them not in a zoo. And I now understand and will always know that they're quite, very different animals <laughs> they're very different animals very true you know and, and, and in all honesty i can't i can't for the you know for the love of god look at, a, at an african elephant in a zoo anymore because i've mm. seen him here walk 100 kilometers in 24 hours from here to tanzania and you know and, and some of them are collared so you you know for for monitoring so you can see what they're doing um and if you you know if in the evenings when we um when we feel like it, you know, we grab a couple of drinks, we drive to a waterhall here, and then we just sit there, and, and then the elephants come to drink and everything. And highly intelligent animals, intricate social structures, you know, and, 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 and you've seen it down there, you know. It's, it's uh, when you see the animal in its natural surroundings, you know, it's, it's, um, it's where, they, where they're supposed to be, where they yeah. need to be, you know. And, 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 and I do get to some extent the functions of zoos, but, um, you know, elephants are not yet endangered, endangered and they don't need breeding programs so you know i'm not an activist but if if, if someone would say okay let's get all the elephants out i'd be i'd be happy with that mm. 
Well, I, I, it's uh, oh, no, no, and then I'm just sort of thinking as I'm sitting here because, like I say, it's not a conversation that no, normally many people will probably get to have with somebody in your position as well. So, I mean, with the zoos, I, I, I guess the thing is, if people like, if I didn't actively take my kids who are now urban, essentially, they grew up in a city. If we didn't t- actively take them to zoos and take them out to the game estates and make sure that I've put them in front of animals and like that book you saw I recently, I was trying to find a copy of it, which is that, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a book about poo and tracking, but for kids and they loved it. So the next time we went out, they're looking at footprints and it's, it's not just the tracking. It's just the aware that there's this thing called a world out there <laughs> that we share with, with these other creatures. So I, I guess what I'm saying is if it wasn't maybe for the zoos or wasn't for that, I think you're in real danger of it, of Africa becoming this abstract concept. And for that matter, the Amazon, which is equally in some ways abstract for people who are for a lot of the world, I would say. No, 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 absolutely. And, and, and I do get that. And, um, and it's, it's, it's just, you know, as I said, specifically, definitely for, for sort of elephants. It's, uh, mm. Yeah, we, we get to see them every day and you sort of get to know them a little bit and um and it's well we we get to know them they i, I don't know if they get to know us but um we, we do know you know it, it is known that elephants have a language and that they can tell each other you know there's a guy or there's a guy on a motorbike or there's a guy with a weapon you know right. that has all research you know these kind of things so yeah it's um but that's a different discussion to be had i think as i said i'm yeah. not an actor that's just what my feelings are and it's just an opinion yeah and they're like you know like um <laughs> we all have them and they all stink <laughs> <laughs> so i mean to give like i've i've followed a bit and and i realize that the, the the poaching side of it is just part of what the rangers are doing and everything but i guess that's what probably for people not in that environment gets the attention or their understanding of it are you able to give an idea of of the, the scale or how much of an issue it is these days i mean i and i've got no idea i ask from borderline complete ignorance you know is it still major is it something that's gone down going up it 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 seems to have gone down um you know the, the thing with poaching is if if you define poaching as the you know illegal taking of natural resources out of a protected area let's call it that okay. i don't know if that's yeah good. yeah that'll... uh but but my wife Dominique did a did a, a survey here just here in the park, and she identified close to eighty types of poaching. You know, it's not just a guy with a gun shooting an animal. Mm. It is, you know, it is everything from very low key like firewood and uh, you know medicinal plants. I always struggle with that word. Sorry, yeah. all all the way up through um, you know commercial poaching, subsistence poaching, charcoaling which is a huge problem. Um, and then it goes into sort of the Char- criminal Charcoaling? People yeah. making charcoal or something? Yeah. Cutting down trees and then making kilns. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And, um, but again, for here, you know, it, it, it sounds a bit, um, you know, harmless, but, you know, it, you're talking truckloads full of hardwood that take 100 years to regenerate. Mm-hmm. And it's not even for the local market. It's not for the people here. They go on a ship and that goes to the Emirates and to and to these places where they don't have any trees, but they want charcoal. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of that going on. And, but if you, if you talk about elephant poaching, I think from what I'm hearing, I, I can't speak for Africa as a whole, but it, it's, it's gone down. Same with rhino poaching, partially through what we're hearing, you know, through COVID, 
and the restrictions that come with that. Okay. Yep. You know, we know that um, rhino poaching in Kruger National Park in South Africa has come down by, you know, a massive amount. I know a gentleman there who runs the crime scene unit and he went from one and a half dead rhinos a day on average to less than one a week. Um, 2012 in this park, there wouldn't be a couple of days that you would hear gunfire, you know, mm. and, and, and elephants were like shot in groups, five, six, all at once. Um, we haven't had an elephant poached here for more than a year. And that goes for Amboseli next door as well. So it, it has gone down, but that also has to do with the market. It becomes more difficult to get things into the Asian markets because those are the, the consumers of it. And, um, you know, China put some restrictions on. Um, there is still a market in Laos and, uh, and, and Vietnam. And then it gets illegally across the border. Yeah. But it is not too bad at the moment. But if you if you consider that what it was was already off the chart, it doesn't mean that we're now at a place where, you know, um, species can can start growing again. You know, yeah. If if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it happens every day. You know, people are rangers are out twenty four seven, just constantly trying to keep tabs of that and uh, trying to stay ahead of it. Hmm. Yeah. So you were saying you were saying earlier there's no hunting whatsoever, even sustenance hunting or anything in the whole of Kenya. Is that the case? Yeah, that is that is the case. So all the wildlife is legally owned by the Kenyan Wildlife Service, and I think 80s or 90s, odd, I'd be guessing. But they they banned hunting completely. Hmm. Uh, so any animal that needs to be shot needs to be shot by the Kenyan Wildlife Service. You know, yeah. which would problem animal or sick animals or things like that but that's the situation here yeah mm. but obviously in, in all african countries that is different yeah yeah well was that a case because of the amount basically the amount of animals that were getting killed that it just wasn't sustainable or in a combination of firearms i suppose or what was the i think, I think that, is, that is very true in, in the 1980s there was a huge poaching problem in, okay uh, and it, it was big and it, it got to the point where you know, the military was even used against poachers. That escalated like properly, and I think not too long after that they put uh, they, they put the ban on that. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So then, so what I saw on on your Instagram as I was just flicking through the Instagram, just doing a bit of background and everything, was a comment that you made on uh, trophy hunting. And it hmm. wasn't it wasn't particularly positive, which is and I and I guess the thing is again for. There's obviously a lot of a, a PR machine promoting the, tro the all the benefits and everything of, of the trophy hunting. Yeah. Um, but you said that from what you'd seen, your experience, your area as well, you hadn't necessarily the actual benefit rolling into the communities. And I realize you're talking your area. I'm not expecting you to, you know, for the whole of Africa or anything like that. But I mean, is that something you're comfortable with? You haven't seen it sort of come through because it, it's, it's, it's a different narrative to what even I've been fed for the, for the justifying hunting and trophy hunting. No, I think like, you know, like I said in that post, I, I, I do get that if you are in an area where there's an imbalance mm. of yeah, sort of the natural, the natural balance that you normally have because there's a fence around the place or, you know, things like that. Then I definitely get it with hunting. Like in New Zealand, you know, you don't have any predators, right? So if, yeah. if the, 
here are not controlled, they obviously, you know, that population will blow up. Well, yeah, we have, we have areas where they're, they're suffering from malnutrition, basically. There's not enough food. Other areas, they're fine, but it's just certain pockets where, yeah, there's the, they've spread so much or they're influx. And it's, this, is, this is the other thing I think is important people understand, which I don't always get unless you've looked into it, is you can't talk about a species and just talk about it over an entire, even a country as small relatively as New Zealand, there's pockets and it's geographically, you've got to talk them in context of that particular grouping of them as well. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, and, and I, I, I do, as I said, I do get it. And um, what my personal opinion is on a, whether I would, I would hunt or not, that, that, is, that is not important. But what I think is important mm. is that, you know, if you decide that you want to do trophy hunting or that you want to do hunting in Africa, do your due diligence in regards to where you're going and don't necessarily just listen to the, uh, or not just consult the, um, the one offering that package. The, the company trying to sell you a product. <laughs> yeah, because I, because I think, um, you know, it, it is in their interest also to paint, paint a certain picture. And there are, Quite a lot, or quite a lot of organisations that do it really well. But what you want to be looking for is, you know, there's there's certain species that you really want to stay away from. Um, you know, if if you if you go to the IUCN website, there is uh, you know a red list of um, species that are endangered, and and that really doesn't matter whether it's a pocket or not because they are they are quite just a few pockets of that. Um, and also look at what is being done with the funds generated from your hunting experience. Is it is it going to a uh, you know a company? Yeah, is one thing. Um, you know, do they have something in place that the income of that goes back to conservation? Proven, you know, and mm. uh, you know normally when when you know when you go hunting in Africa, you you pay out of your ass to do it. Yep. You know, prices are not. You know, it's. it's Unfortunately, you know, it's, it's quite expensive. So it's worth doing your due diligence mm. with these companies, you know. And then don't, and this was the thing I was sort of fulminating against in my post, you know, don't do the canned hunting stuff. Mm. You know, don't go to a fenced reserve somewhere where they breed lions to be shot by tourists, you know, and they, and they, 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 they feed them the night before so they know exactly where they are. And then you go and shoot a lion. And, and I think any true hunter um i think not only you know they they also enjoy the sort of being in the natural environment and it being an equal playing field to some extent that you have to put your skills to bear to actually get a result and it yeah and it's all those things field craft and understanding your surroundings and being a good shot you know and and being calm and knowing where to place the shots mm -hmm. you know and things like that and and i think you know if you go into that can hunting stuff that that's just as i said in the post that's just execution you know yeah. and we we all seen the, the picture of, of people that sort of waddle from the airport to the vehicle you know and then and then that vehicle drives them to to the place where they can shoot an animal and there's some mm. outrageous stuff there mate i've seen it in a few places um you know people from abroad just or just just you know screw shooting from driving vehicles on running zebras and shit like that don't do it if if 
if you're going to do hunting, do it properly and do it in a way that mm. that is supporting what's going on. Well, we that would be my opinion, and that would um, yeah. So take it. Yeah, yeah. It, we have. I mean, uh, even with my brief experience, I would like to come back and I would like to bring my kids back over to Africa at some point. But I'll be bringing my camera, not a rifle. I mean, I'm not. That's that's the thing. I'm just not. That's not never been really my interest. Um, and we have it in New Zealand as well. Not so much up here, Auckland, further down south, where you can you can get everything from a free range hunt through to big game estates through to can through to again some equally horrific stories of exactly how set these things you know how set up some of these hunts can be sometimes whether the client knows it or not almost seems to be a, another another little issue as well yeah, yeah. so so i was um going back to lead ranger and i saw something else as well which i'm i keep on looking on um we've got we, we just got disney channel which includes national geographic so i'm clicking onto the National Ge Geographic, you see where I'm going, National Geographic channel, um, waiting to see if this doco comes up. So, um, Akihanga? Akahinga? Sorry, again? Akashinga, the brave ones. Akashinga, yes. So, um, I mean, I'm, again, very keen to see that. Only been able to find little bits and pieces on it, but it looks, there's quite a few questions. It, it seems to be a very unique kind of documentary. Are you, like, First of all, what what how much involvement do you have? I'm not quite sure how much involvement you had with that, and and what is it? Yeah, so so Lead Ranger is a cooperation of three non for profits that work together on this program, and uh, two of them are actually originally Australian. One is called the International Anti Poaching Foundation, run by mm -hmm. a uh, former uh, Navy diver called Damien Mander, Navy sniper, Navy diver. Uh, Damien, and then there's the Thin Green Line Foundation, which is run by an ex-park ranger called uh, Sean Wilmore out of Melbourne. And um, so we do this together. And um, the IAPF runs this project in Zimbabwe. Right? Okay. And, they, um, and basically, they made the decision um, to employ female rangers only in the, in the field roles. Uh, there, there is a couple of support walls that are being done by man. And it's a very interesting program. Damien Manda mm. would be the better person to talk to, but mm. I can give you a bit of a rundown. And it, it was a decision that was at times, you know, questioned by people and definitely mm. ridiculed by the local man in Zimbabwe. You know, and these women, they, you know, how can you be a ranger and booba and all that? Um, most of these women come from background of domestic uh, abuse things yep. like that they were taken on by um, you know by this organization and what Damien does is um, he acquires real estate through um, hunting concessions that have no income uh, you know hunting in Africa has come down quite significantly part partially through things like you know Cecil the lion all that mm. um, so, and, and he sort of takes leases on these lands, turns them into conservation areas, and, and the women patrol it. And they um, make their hard as nails. I had a couple of women here on the leadership courses, uh, Petronella and Juliana, um, properly hard, hard as nails. You know, from their background, their drive. And there's a couple of fallouts or sort of side things from that. He said, I have not seen any corruption with my women you know something that you see with the man quite a lot he said 
you know, if, if I employ men, 10% of the wages go back into the community. For women, it's 60% or more. That's that's the one line I was going to bring up. I was just reading through it earlier, and that struck me as it's like, yeah, that it gets reinvested or gets gets to the family, you know. Yeah. So so again, this this is a this is a ripple effect, you know, and 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 it's also very funny to see because you know when we did the leadership course here, you got Pat and Juliana from Zim. Um, we got uh, two ranges from Tanzania, uh, five ranges from Uganda, a couple here from Kenya, including some Maasai from the other side of the hill, which is a very patriarchic sort of warrior culture. And then the first day they're looking at each other, going like, um, and then we start running, and the women outperform 80% of the guys on the run. And they go, ah, women. And then as we go through the course, you know, it's it's – like the four women we had on the course, Pendo, Juliana, Pat, and then Connie from here, they they were consistently among the top four of the of anything, really. You know, and it's it's um, it's it's awesome to see what people do given the opportunity because that is that's often the case, you know, as a yeah. as a woman in Africa. And I'm very uncomfortable talking about it because I'm a guy, you know, and how, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the right person to address these things. But um, very often in rural areas, you have very limited choices. You know, you're going to run the house and, and that's just about it really, mm. you know, and then, and then seeing, see, seeing these women sort of flourish and then also really bonding even with the, the Maasai warriors from across the hill where, you know, even the Maasai said, said afterwards in an interview because we do these interviews with him and he said he said i tell you what i i i didn't believe women could do it mm. he said well i've seen it with my own eyes and i will take that back to my community <laughs> you know and so no it's 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 an amazing program and there's a there's a lot of good coming out of that and um you know and it it's no it's no compromise and, mm. I, and I think um at the end of the day they're all rangers you know yeah all of them and they got to do certain things and that's what they do you know yeah so so i, I mean i look forward to to checking out the the doco as well because it's just intriguing on so many levels and and i, I think if people have followed what i've done i tend to start talking to people and follow threads through as well. So I'm sure I will, will hunt down more people to talk about these programs, you know, off the back of talking to you as well, you know, that's, they, they tend to piggyback these things. Um, so, so that will, that will be very awesome. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, for you now, so, I mean, what, what does a, a day in the life of Boris look like? Are you mainly doing training out there? I mean, it's, is that uh, the lead range is your main focus these days? That's that's all encompassing. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, obviously we're a, a little bit limited with training at the moment because of COVID. You know, this country also has a, a partial lockdown. Um, you know, so we can't run any training at the moment. Um, but we've been uh, we've been working in the background quite a lot um, on. Um, sort of further developing the program, which was actually very welcome because, because 2019 was a, you know, a, a bloody freight train. You know, mm. we didn't really have time to do any of that. We're also getting together with a lot of sort of larger conservation organizations in Africa to work towards range of training standards. Yep. Something that was very much needed. 
Um, so that is a, an, another great program we're working on. And in the meantime, I'm sort of trying to sneak in some in-field mentoring. So next week, I'm going to spend some time in one of the forest reserves near the coast. And a couple of, and two weeks after that, up near the Masamara here. Um, and just waiting for this thing to pass. And then mm. we're going to go build back into it. Yeah, can't wait. So one thing I just just I remember to just ask was something I think again I think I saw through a post of yours or something like that is because I pick you probably get a bit of it as people look at the stuff you've been doing and go well how do we get involved how do we become a ranger but I, were you saying is it Kenya where you have to be a, a national or you have to be resident or something like that to actually do this Yeah and and that goes really throughout the whole of Africa okay. um, and, and this is like. You know, one of the things that, that, that is important for us is, you know, and a question that rangers ask throughout Africa is professionalization of training and of their profession. And still to this day, you know, especially in South Africa, there are private reserves that offer people to come in, pay money, and then become a ranger. Mm. Right? But the situation there is a little bit different. And again, and also there, you've got to be a bit careful. Uh, but... In most countries, if you want to be a ranger, you're mandated by the government. It, and, and so becoming a ranger in Africa is a near impossibility unless you live here, have residential status, and then get employed by one of the organizations. It, it would almost be the same as a Kenyan coming to New Zealand, grabbing a rifle, and then start patrolling one of your beautiful parks there. Mm. You know, it's a same legal problem. Yeah. However, this is Africa, and in Africa, a lot of things sort of happen under the radar as well and there are some people who are you know patrolling in the park with a weapon on a tourist visa mm. and that's something that you want to stay away from because yep. you there's a couple of people in jail for, um, for stuff like that and also i think it's the wrong message if 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 people want to get involved in this like truly want to get involved in this and they have the background to bring to the table law enforcement is something that is very much needed mm. more than military I can say that with my background. Law enforcement is very much needed. Um, and you are a trainer that can leave his ego at home and um, and is also, um, you know, has the competency to know where you want to go with your lesson, but not necessarily how you're going to get there. So, you know, being adaptable, you know, then, then definitely there, there are ways to, to get into this, you know, just like I did. But... Um, I, I think the perception of going to Africa and grabbing a gun and solving the problem, I think that is a big miscon misconception mm. that we all would, would want to stay away from. Um, yeah. If, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Very uh, much about legality and, and these kind of things, you know? So, <clears throat> yeah. So, the uh, for people who want to get involved but aren't necessarily military alley background or anything and more just want to support the projects that you're doing is it a case of the like through the lead rangers can they find more information about that would you go to the sorry i forgot forgotten the name become the ies iapf yep. iapf where would be the best for people just like oh okay let's just we just want to find some more information not need, not going over there not doing anything where where can we get a bit more info on it yeah we've got a website the iapf as a website, okay. so IPF.org, um, Thing Green Line Foundation, Thing Green yep. Line. Well, it's an Australian site. I'm sure, if you type in Thing Green Line in Google, I'll put, 
I'll put I'll put links down with all the all the stuff goes out. There'll be links and stuff with that. But I mean, there is there's the availability for people to go on and and to um um yeah find that support and have a way they want to do it. You know. Yeah, and then there's uh, you know another interesting one to follow is the International Ranger Federation, which is an international thing. We've got the Game Rangers Association of Africa again. Yep. One to follow because that that gives you a a good idea of what is going on here. And what is needed and where is, is, is what needed hmm. um, you know and and uh, and those are good sources those are good sources African Parks Network another great source and um, yeah hmm. awesome there's, there's, yeah, there's good information out there so so to round it up then which is mm-hmm. how I found out about you how did the whole UF Pro thing uh, come about and how was that I mean you know for a for a little side project for you. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I sort of, um, Youth Pro works with a guy called Eli. He runs courses out of Germany. He does CQB, limited penetration stuff. And at some point I heard about him and I was still living in Holland at the time and I hooked up with him and I went on one of his courses and it was a lot of fun. And um, and it was just nice to do something a bit sort of running around things mm. that I hadn't done for a while. And then, um, and we, we sort of kept in touch and unbeknownst to me, he'd been talking to Youth Pro and said, you know, there's this, this big idiot from Holland that, you know, might be able to do something. So at some point I got a message from Nate, who's the, the, the director of Youth Pro. And he said, uh, look, we, we want to do something with tracking. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. And uh, so I went to Slovenia and we filmed this thing in a week. We, we basically made it up on the spot according mm. to the terrain that we found their production team is next level mate I've, I've, I've never seen anything like that the way they hammer through scenes is ridiculous and um and i met the guys at youth pro and i'm not i'm, I'm not plugging anything here but it's it, they're really good guys they're good blokes mm. all of them you know and uh and they also said you know if we want to support you guys you know can we can we send some stuff over for know and, and that's what they've been doing and so they're they're sponsoring us with with clothing um mm. you know which is awesome and um yeah and then we just did that thing and it and it um it, it turned out to be quite all right i really mm. you know, the end product that did they did amazing you know it's uh the production team made me look a lot better than i'm no, no, no. but it was it's a lot of fun and it's and it's a good organization and we did actually talk about maybe doing something tracking related here in Ke- in Kenya um, so that might be something that is on the horizon hmm. uh, uh, we'll see well it, I mean it's awesome because it's awesome content and that the, the actual content in it there is valuable it's slickly produced that it, it's it's not it's one of those things that was very easy to watch. You start chewing through it. You know, I've watched, I've watched a couple of their series now as well. And they're all very much the case They they get the subject matter experts in. So you actually learn, but you're entertained. And I'd probably watch, I prefer to watch half of that stuff than half of the mini series that you find on Netflix or anything else anyway, because you also know that what they're portraying is accurate because it's actually people doing it. It's not, you know, um, Hollywood gun handling to a T, you know? So no, and I mean, say, and look, same thing for me. It's just I, I've been exposed to some of their products. I've loved the products I've used. So it's just like, yeah, they just seem to be leaps and bounds. It's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, um, and good people. That that to me is also important. You know, yeah. it's, it, um, 
you can have the best product in the world, but if you're a, um, I don't want to say the word, but you know the word. If you're yeah. Not, yeah. Then, uh, <laughs> no, associated with it. No. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, hey, look, it, again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's, it was just one of those things after watching that, I'm like, there's somebody I would like to talk to and just have a, have a bit of a chat and a yarn with as well. And, and learn a bit, because as I said, for down here in little old New Zealand, we are, certain things happened recently we've realized we're very more interconnected all of us than we really realize but it's an insight into maybe part of the world that you see it in a certain way and then you talk to somebody who's actually there and you're like yeah okay maybe maybe there's more to learn about that side of things which is always always very cool so thank you thank you again oh thanks and uh, very welcome and uh, next time we should do this over beer mate yeah <laughs> definitely <laughs> You never know. One one year soon, I may get back over there somewhere. Oh, dude, cool. you're always welcome. So we've got plenty of space here. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. So uh, thank you for that, man. Um, was appreciated. The um, the one one question I did have, and I could kind of hear it in your voice, so I didn't really ask, but you kind of answered it as well, was one one thing I have noticed is, this is years, I haven't followed it ago, but there almost seemed to be this weird thing of anti-poaching sports, international, US, ex-military, instead of going contracting, I'm going anti-poaching for a while. And it became, there was like posters and they looked like they'd been sponsored the guns and everything. It was a bit, it was very slick, but it was also slightly surreal because you're like, well, this is a bit, a little bit strange. And I don't know. I don't think it was, I don't know, area or whatever it was, but yeah, it was, it was just like, yeah, they do look like they're on a hunting holiday, but it's poaching, anti-poachers, yeah. you know? Sort of, um, you know, watching Tears of the Sun a few times to many, and uh, Blood Diamond, and, and mm. you know, and associating Africa with, you know, that, that sort of wild mercenary type place. Um, all the people that are professionals in this sector, you know, all the people that are, you know, doing the actual work on the ground, they all are horrified by that. Mm. By that. So, and 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 the thing is, you know, it's. It looks great on social media, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how I learn about it. You know, it was. And then here's me with my gun and this and the other, but you're not helping the problem. Mm. An African problem. And it's, it's, it is, it is being solved and being dealt with and being done really well by the Africans, you know? And if, yeah. and if you want to support that, then support that instead of trying to replace them and come in, and, you know, if, um, a mate of mine says, says this a bit more harshly, you know, but he says, you know, it, it doesn't matter what your background in the military is in the West. You just sit down one night with a couple of these veterans from the African Bush Wars, mm. some of the Rangers that have been Rangers for 30 years, and, um, and just listen and learn. 
Yeah. Because it's, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and that's, that's what I try to do. And that's well, what I learned very early from Eric. It, it, was, it was interesting as a young fella again from New Zealand going over, and I can't remember which order we did. It was Zimbabwe or Botswana, but it was eye-opening because we, we landed, we got flown in by a four-seater and then driven by a Land Rover. And now I own a Defender, so I, I reckon part of that was from, from that trip out there, you know, it got into my blood. Um, but, yeah, it was... Now, now, would it be Zimbabwe or Botswana where the 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 actual, where we were stayed was owned and run by South Africans? Hmm. Would that make sense? Because it was quite stark contrast because one of them, everybody was the same around the table, basically. When we got to whether it was Zimbabwe or Botswana, or maybe just this particular state, we had the rangers who would take us out, who were black guys, but then when we got home, we were sitting with all the white owners and all the rangers were over another table and i immediately think well i want to go sit with them because they're the people who probably have the more interesting stories going on and it was just like this this there was quite an interesting change between those two you know countries or areas that we went to and that stuck with me as a young fellow i'm just like whoa i'd never never quite seen it like that you know so yeah you know at the end of the day they're all africans yeah well that was the feeling that we we spoke a little bit about it because new zealand had the history with the um the south african rugby everything where they stopped the rugby games and all that stuff so they knew their kiwi you're like oh your kiwis new zealand and everything and it was the same thing one table and i forget which way it was but same thing we all just sat around the table and um victoria falls we're outside we were looking at we're outside victoria falls so that would have made us in yeah uh and yeah beautiful place yes and we had a power cut so while we were there all the power in the entire area disappeared and then the thunder rolled in i mean i don't think you could have really planned for a brief time there to just like pack it all into one one thing you know so um but yeah it's it does it's still something that still i still remember a lot about that trip and that was one thing you know and the giant freaking snails that we thought were a rugby ball or something when we were walking from our back out to the huts at night going to kick it and then we put a torch on and went I'm glad I didn't kick that because that's very slowly moving across the trail. Yeah. <laughs> so. I like with you and, and that's the that's the effect that um, you know that, that that these places in Africa have on people you know it's mm. quite profound if, if you've seen a you know a sundown you know the uh, the golden hour in Africa that just blows you away and, and you know at the end of the day that is also a great way to support you know because a lot of a lot of these conservation organizations, they really rely on tourism as their main income. And it's taken a massive hit, obviously, because yeah. of COVID. So I know it's a long way out for you guys, but, you know, if, if people are sort of planning on a trip, do it. And, you know, do it early on because um, if you, you know, like now the migration in the Masamara is going on. Mm. Tens of thousands of wildebeest migrating. Um, and the international airport is opening up next week. Not saying this is the time, you know, to <laughs> really start traveling, but I, th I think it will slowly pick up. So if, if you want to be there, you know, with one or two vehicles instead of 50 vehicles, yeah. watching something like that, this is the time, you know, so yeah. and it would be a great way to support this whole thing. Well, it's been funny on the just on the tourism thing because we're still closed borders of anything coming in, of anybody coming in, basically. So mm -hmm. they're really encouraging the notion of domestic tourism. So we went down to the South Island with the family um, a couple of weeks ago, and 
there's no tourists around. So there's no tourist buses. I mean, there is tourists, but it's just that they're all Kiwis. So it's, again, the same thing down here. It's a unique time for us even to see our own country because it's, we normally wouldn't. We'd be waiting for all the coaches and stuff to get out of the way to get to these places. I've, I've never been there, but I've never met a person that's been to New Zealand that hasn't said this mm. must be one of the most beautiful places I've been. They're so mm. diverse, and uh, hopefully I'll make it there one day. But it's um, no, you, you guys got an amazing slice of the world, man. Mm. Well, that's it. That's it. And I, I guess I'm aware of it. And I think that's the key is people who leave and go somewhere else and then come back, they, they realize it. But we have a thing as well. And it's something I, I am aware of. I grew up in South Auckland, which is very different to poverty areas overseas, very different to Africa. No question about it. Went a few places in South Africa as well. That was just very different. But you have guys or kids there who never leave that area. They've never mm. been to the snow. They've hardly been to the beach, you know. We live in the Pacific Island, and there's a large amount of Pacific Islanders who drown every year because they can't mm. swim. And it's just like it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. You live on an island. How do we not swim? Anyway, we're off, off way off subject. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, again, man, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. I'll, um, I'll do a edit through and um, send you all the links and all the bits and pieces for it as well. And um, I haven't but, said anything that I'm not, you know, comfortable with getting out yeah. there, so free mate yeah it's all good <laughs> i don't think i have like i say i kind of picked the people that i figured well we're gonna have a good conversation so it's all good all right i've got a got another guy tomorrow i'm teaching him how to shoot guns so yeah that'll be oh, that sounds like a good day out well yeah, it normally is although I, I am aware that i haven't actually shot any of my own guns for what is probably close to near months now <laughs> I set up rifles for people, so I'm, I get to set up a lot of rifles. I'm getting very good at zeroing rifles, but yeah, my my own rigs are um, actually gathering dust, so it's all right. I'll get out there, man. Yeah, pleasure. All right, thank you, mate. I'll talk to you again soon. Very welcome. See you, mate. See ya. Stay well.